0: Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlonthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
1: Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs>
2: Well welcome back to Girl Nick of the Podcast. This is this is
1: a day to be back. This is a day, this is a week to be back. There is so much happening. Some good, some bad, some sad you know, we have all the emotions here with us today, and we're gonna walk everyone through them. You know, it's
2: true. I mean, if there's like a triangle
1: or spectrum of
2: emotions, like I don't know what therapists use, psychologists, whatever. If there's like a little spectrum, like we hit all of them.
1: Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, and we have just huge stories today, and we're actually gonna talk about them the beginning of the episode today. So, you know, I hope everyone doesn't get dizzy and no vertigo. Like I know we're going out of order. Like don't get your OCD in a bunch it's going to be okay. But even our interview with our guest we have today is also about a topic that can bring about emotion as well. So we just, you know, we're going to figure it out. But the best part is that there are action items, which we all love. So I guess let's, let's jump into the stories, right? I mean, no time to waste. Absolutely. We have no time to waste zero. And this
2: day, I, I know we talk about this from time to time, those days where you kind of like, will always remember where you were. I feel like this is a thousand percent that situation. But likely story is that you are aware that Derek Chauvin was convicted of all three charges in
1: the trial, the murder trial of George Floyd. Thank the Lord literally all of the prayers we are all on the edge of our seats today for this one and obviously people listening it'll be wednesday or beyond but sam and i just found out the news you know a couple hours ago before recording this and like she said it definitely is one of those moments that you will like never forget where you were i was just like crouched in front of my tv watching the news but it was scary because if it would have gone really any other way or any kind of disappointing way It would have been a very dark day for our country and beyond, honestly. The whole world was affected by this, so.
2: Totally. And it was really interesting. I was watching MSNBC, and they interviewed this professor who I'm now unfortunately blanking the name of, and he has 23 students in his class. And he asked them, as this news was breaking, what do you think the verdict is? How many of you think that he is going to be convicted? Four out of 23 of his students said that they thought he was going to be convicted. So, I mean, there's so many avenues in which we can talk about this trial, what it means, how it connects on so many things from policing to racial justice and more. But I think that to me was so, so not only like appalling, but resonated in terms of how deep these issues are that like that's that's our gut reaction it's totally. like oh this would be someone would be held accountable at such a low level
1: yeah I mean just with a case like this too I mean even just if you watched any of it I watched some of the closing statements yesterday the defense just ha- was were pulling shit out of their ass like there's just, there's a very clear answer here and everyone saw it with their own eyes and but the fact that even with that We all were on the edge of our seats, not knowing if justice would be served. And also like states and cities and even the federal government where they didn't know what the reaction would be, they didn't know what the verdict would be and the way we had to like literally militarize our streets for this day is also so telling and just telling of the problem and how this is just such the norm for us. It's like easy justice, but the fact that it was such a big deal that it could have not been is wild. Wild and just shows how much work we have to do.
2: A thousand percent. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I think, it, look, scared of so many things in this whole spectrum, but to me, it was like not getting accountability. Like, obviously, I don't condone violence, but like that didn't scare me. The reaction of people being unhappy didn't scare me. It's not the people that are fighting for their rights, it's not the people that are fighting to not get shot down in the streets or harassed or killed by police. It's like, to me, it's like, no, no, no. like the the fear is that that is validated by a globally public trial, yeah, that sets the stage for what's acceptable and what's not in this world.
1: Totally. Yeah, it would I think completely would have like dismantled every system we have in place and any, you know, idea of, like, democracy or people even literally going to the extent of not even believing that their vote matters or not even believing literally anything matters because at the end of the day, if we couldn't get justice here, like, where could we get it? And, like, again, like, back to the point of just the kind of militarization that we put physically in the streets as a response to this day, like, even though people in power, they know that there is, there's a problem here. They know that, you know, this could go the wrong way and people are going to be pissed instead of really working to like fix it and passing the legislation we need and get getting to the source and fixing the problem itself.
2: Totally. But I will say, speaking of leaders, leaders in the field, in the political space, I was really inspired by our president's speech, our VP's speech, their response. But I really felt like I left watching that, feeling confident in our leadership. And like, there were role models that were listening to the Republic.
1: Yeah, hopefully now it's just followed with action. And speaking of action, there are things we can do as well. And so we want to also push out and make sure everyone knows that like, justice was technically served today. But George Floyd is not alive. And so many others are not alive because we have a serious problem on our hands. And we need to do the work to fix it. Like the fight is not over so as always you guys know we love to give action items we love a good action item we do day of action whatever we're calling it (laughs) and starting with just highlighting the justice and policing act we talked about this a few episodes back but Basically, now, you know, after this verdict, now we have to look forward. And so now lawmakers on Capitol Hill, led by the Congressional Black Caucus, are hoping the demonstrations happening in the streets will yield, you know, changes to the law finally. And so the bill as it stands would ban police departments from using chokeholds. It will develop a national standard for use of force, limit the transfer of military weapons to police departments, define lynching as a federal hate crime. Establish a National Police Misconduct Registry and limit qualified immunity, which protects officers from lawsuits over alleged misconduct. So very important bill It would be like a real first step to trying to tackle this issue of police reform. And we need it. And there are things you can do to try and push this out there. So we will put the link in our episode description with the link to contact your representatives to advocate for the Justice and Policing Bill which is also named after George Floyd. So head to that link. It literally takes you I'm not getting 5 seconds. They already have an email written for you. Just plug in your info um, and it'll send a email to your legislators about the bill. So
2: and look, if you're If you're a chatty Kathy, you're like, I love a good phone call. Like, first of all, I don't know who you are. Like, you are a rare breed. Let's just put it that way.
1: Our moms and grandmas would love this, actually. i maybe pass it along to them.
2: Like, I think this is their moment. But if that, like, sounds like you, you want to pass it along, fivecalls.org. We'll also put the, of course, the link in our bio as well. But they have a script ready to roll for when you call your senators. You either email, boom, you
1: call. Also, boom. There's so many different lanes. Yes. Pick your lane. Maybe do both. Maybe swerve. Swerve back and forth. Do a little, like, merging. Yes. Oh my god. (laughs) But no. Good action item. Fulfilling. Impactful. Get to it. Get to it. Okay. Well, that was, I guess, some light. It was some light, you know, to a very dark issue. And a very dark and just long and tiring year of, you know, protesting. This was almost a year after George Floyd's murder to finally get that justice. But as we know, it was a long summer. It's been a long year. People have been in the streets also, by the way, and shout out to them like literally almost every day since last year when all of this was happening. And it's definitely gone under the radar. And so shout out to all those people who have stayed at it and to all the activists and everything who really made this day happen the way it did but moving on to darker things to yes like really brutal brutal things we had a harsh weekend this weekend in in the US
2: we really did and it's funny we'll we'll explain what this is in a moment it will come very much to light in this next sentence that I say but i texted one of my best friends that lives in london now and i was like it would be great to wake up in a country without Getting a news notification that there was another mash. Literally.
1: Yeah. No, it's something that you shouldn't have to think about at all. I mean, the one interesting thing though, like, there was after the shooting last month, like, some of the victims who survived did say they were like, I honestly wasn't even surprised though. Like, I just, it's living in this country, it's like not a matter of like if but when, or that's how it makes, that's how it makes you feel. Like, I know everywhere I go, and it, that I'm thinking about it or, like, thinking about what I would do. So, and that... I always look for the exits. I literally, like... like, Same. And now it's, like, everywhere. It's not just schools. It's supermarkets, movie theaters, people's workplaces. It's literally everywhere. And we have another epidemic in this country, and that is gun violence.
2: But unfortunately, we all awoke to news of a shooting that happened late Thursday. So this time it was at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis and eight people were killed. So by the end of the weekend though, right? Like that's just the start. At least a half dozen more mass shootings took place across the country. Like that was like the vibe of the weekend, not great. So since March 16th, when eight people were killed and one wounded in shootings at three Atlanta area spas, at least 50, this is insane, 50 mass shootings have been reported in the United States. So
1: literally, like in a month, like a little bit more than a month, a few days more.
2: Honestly, like fifty mass shootings is probably more than I've changed my outfit in a month. I couldn't agree
1: more. Like I wow.
2: So what's also important here? I know we probably should have jumped into this at the very beginning. Is like, what is a mass shooting? Like, what what's different between a shooting and a mass shooting? what is that? So, it is commonly defined as an incident where four or more people are killed or wounded by gunfire, excluding the shooter. So, just think about that. Okay, there have been at least 50 mass shootings since March 16th, and each of them have involved four or more people each.
1: Yeah, and that doesn't even, you know, that doesn't even count probably how many there were of three people, or two, or even one. Like, Gun violence is definitely reaches beyond just mass shootings, and there was probably the numbers are probably even more staggering when you look at it as gun violence as a whole, too, which is important to note. So, totally, and that's
2: definitely something we want to explore more on this show. It's an important issue to us personally, so there will be more to it. But in the meantime, we do want to give you some action items so you don't feel
1: like too depressed. Yeah, but okay, so every town who Is an incredible organization. Fighting Gun Violence has a number that you can text. So listen here. You text CHECKS to 64433. And if you do that, then the number will actually text you back and ask you what your zip code is. And then once you tell them your zip code, they will actually call you and immediately connect you to your representative's office to call them and let them know you want gun reform it might just be a voicemail so there you go but also follow volunteer support donate to a bunch of amazing organizations like every town students demand action march for our lives moms demand action we will also provide the links in the episode description to all of those resources they also have like amazing action items on their website if you want to just go look to what they have going on and and join on with them and help uplift what they're doing but the other big thing happening this week, happening today, as Sam and I record this, is a lovely, lovely holiday, 420. And while we all love 420 for certain reasons, we also want to take the time for 420 to talk about the politics around legalizing cannabis and you know what it really all means. First of all, this is an important day to advocate for legislation. So some facts too, just about cannabis and also the way it really contributes to racial injustice. To start, like obviously a lot of states are legalizing marijuana and basically at this point, 81% of cannabis business owners are white and 4.3% are black. And that is very significant, especially because of the disproportionate rates at which black people are arrested for cannabis possessions. So black people are 264% more likely 264% more likely than white people to be arrested for cannabis possession even though they both use it at similar rates and then even where cannabis is legal black people are still being arrested more often than white people for possession which is just wild and stupid at that point point. and so 420 celebrate in however way you want but definitely also take action on this day or i guess for everyone it'll be for yesterday but it's never too late so take action tell congress to pass the more act which would legalize cannabis at the federal level you guys like come on and also again expunge prior convictions you can text more to 40649 and fill out a tiny form to send a message to Congress. It literally takes like five seconds, which sends a message to your Congress member. So definitely head over, do that. And the other important thing happening this week, Sam, is Earth Day. Earth Day is tomorrow, Thursday. And obviously, we've dedicated this whole month to celebrating Earth Day with our episodes and the topics we're covering. So there's also some action items we can do on Earth Day.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, you know we love a good self-proclaimed action month, and we also love a good action moment. In case you didn't notice, from the amount of times that we saw it, that from the amount of times that we said action item, that's your new drinking game. Like honestly, for this episode, like rewind, start it over, pour yourself a glass of wine, then do like sip for sip every time we say that. But like EarthDay.org, which is part of the Earth Day Network. Is hosting a three day Earth Palooza. Okay, I kind of named it Earth Palooza, but it's three days of climate Thursday is the day for you. Like, get thirsty for climate change. This is like Thirsty Thursday, but like climate content edition. You know? Yes, I love it. <laughs> it's just that. like it's a great day to be thirsty to learn, Ooh. right? And so, starting at noon, east coast time earthday.org will have its second earth day live digital event which is going to include workshops panels conversations content galore so that is like thing one starting at noon but here's the thing climate relevant the rest of the year right like there's a lot of other days in that pesky calendar of ours so there's lots of time to get involved with earthday.org They have tons of action items that you can be doing all year, so that is awesome. Other things we are keeping an eye on is Biden's Climate Summit. Like, a literal drumroll please moment. Obviously, we don't have that much information on it yet. There's a lot to come, but we will, of course, be covering that at a later date. Well, this is like the perfect segue to introducing our guest, who is the Director of Food and Environment at EarthDay.org, Jillian Simon. She is... She's so impressive. I just can't. I I just can't. I just can't. She's just too cool. She used to work at the USDA as the Chief of Staff within the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights. Yes, we know. It's a mouthful. We're here to introduce her. We're here to get the party started. So without further ado,
3: here's Jillian. Well, it's so great to be here. Thank you both for inviting me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. I could tell. <laughs> I feel like I just want to have a drink with you. We hey, shut up. See, that's uh, the thing. We should put it. like
1: a little like disclaimer on every like guest email we send out and be like, if you want to drink, we are down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we should actually start doing that. Are you like a wine, a beer, a vodka, soda? Urban. You know, bourbon. I'm a Ooh.
2: bourbon girl. Okay,
1: okay. We love that. Love it.
3: <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get into it, my career. So, I, so yes, I was the Chief of Staff for the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights. And our mission really was to provide leadership and direction for the fair and equitable treatment of all USDA customers and employees, and making sure we really deliver quality programs and enforcement of civil rights. I led policy development and operation planning, I also was responsible for independently planning and coordinating and, and operating really government initiatives that hadn't been implemented before, and also really promoted the overall vision and objectives of, of civil rights by establishing uh, great working relationships with farmers and stakeholders. I think uh, a lot of people think when, when I say civil rights at the United States Department of Agriculture, many eyebrows are raised because one, no one really thinks that it's a department. And two, no one truly understands the amount of discrimination that farmers do face.
2: That mm, is honestly, as like someone that did not grow up in a rural area, Same. right <laughs> over my head in the sense that that exists, but it makes sense because discrimination exists in every facet and so many different forms. It's not just like a one size fits all type of issue. So it's interesting just to hear that that is an issue that I just, I don't know, it just never had even like crossed my radar before. Never. What yeah. were some of the issues that you would deal with most?
3: Yeah, so I think one of the, the biggest things in my career happened at USDA when I was working on Pigford versus Glickman, which was a class action lawsuit. And when the U.S. the former USDA secretary, Dan Glickman, was, was the secretary. So there was a lot of alleged racial, racial discrimination against Black farmers and its allocations of farm loans and assistance between 1981 and 1996. And when I was appointed in the Obama administration, there were still lawsuits, there were still files coming into our office and claims about that. So think about it in you know, 2008, 2009, when we're first new to an administration, and I'm looking at cases that were dated back to the late 80s and early 90s for farmer discrimination. And I it, it, was, it was heartbreaking for so many different reasons because we had 70,000 farmers that had filed late and their claims had not been heard. And so in the 2008 Farm Bill, we tried to really provide um, relief for farmers. And in 2010, Congress... Um, appropriated close to $1.2 billion for what we called paid for two, which was the settlement for the second part of the case. But that, that doesn't go without saying, I think the hardest, the hardest time in my career was having checks for farmers that were dead, to be quite honest, because the U.S. government couldn't get their stuff together and hear these cases. So it's, it, it was, it, Pinkford versus Glickman really still sticks with me today. And it, it, it's, it was really hard to be a part of that, but also great at the same time that we could provide leave to some farmers. But it's, again, it's a facet that, that many people don't understand that's happening. Because you have, even today, even today, you have a Black farmer and a white farmer walk into a USDA building to try to get a loan. Nine out of 10 times, the Black farmer will not be heard. So it's still happening today. It happened when we were in the Obama administration. And, you know, some release is happening, but it's, you know, it's systemic racism. Right. Mm
2: -hmm. I feel like I'm having like a light bulb moment. Like I just, it's not that this doesn't make so much sense as an issue. I just really don't think it crossed my mind, which is wild. Yeah.
1: So moving on to, you know, obviously the environment is, a very much a focus for you. And so can you kind of explain to you, like, how does your current role as the Director of Food and Environment of the Earth Day Network connect here? Like, where is that background from?
3: Sure. So when I was at the USDA, I think it was, so what had happened at Earth Day at the USDA was I became so invested in all of what you uh, the United States Department of Agriculture does and I had my hands into so many different things. And knowing my environmental impact, knowing a little bit more about our food systems, I just, I, I, I went with it. I kind of studied all of it. I studied the programs. I studied factory farms. I studied a little bit of everything. During that time I was there, in all honesty, I got I got pretty sick in 2011. And I had to change my diet completely. So I went vegan. And when I went back to USDA after my, my three months of leave, I was visiting factory farms and it kind of, I, I saw the confinement oh God, of animals it. Yeah. and it, it was the most horrifying thing to me. Totally. So I can't imagine. I, so for me, it's really been about human and planetary health about, and it's about what works for me too. Right. So it, it became threefold for me of how I really started my journey because I got sick. I was working at the department. I, I saw factory farms in, in the flesh, which was awful. And I was learning and I learned so much about greenhouse gas emissions. And what I was doing every day was contributing to the climate crisis. And so I really had to take a closer look at my entire footprint. And what I was doing. And so that's why for the last since I left the government, I've really focused on the intersectionality of food and climate, because it's so important that we really address animal agriculture and and what it's and its destruction to not only human health, but but the, the health of the planet as well. Yeah, Yikes. I can't
1: imagine. <laughs> I mean, I've seen like, you know, all the documentaries too that cover a lot of the factory farms. I had like a stunt of, you know. I've had multiple stunts, actually, of being a vegetarian because of (laughs) those documentaries to also, like, I live in California, and when you drive from Northern California to Southern California, you drive by Harris Ranch. I don't know if it's still, like, if it's even at the level of a real factory farm, but you see all the cows just, like, standing in their own shit, stand, like, right next to each other, and that was enough for me when I was, like, in high school to, like, go vegetarian. I'm still working on like working my way to like being vegan or going back to that life because it's just, it's so hard. I mean,
3: it's easy. It's much easier in California than it is in most other places. (laughs) That is true. I know.
2: We'll get into our, I have a stupid question segment. Backing up in terms of the USDA, what is the USDA? I feel like a lot of people don't know.
3: The USDA is the United States. Department of Agriculture. What the USDA basically does is they they provide leadership on food, agriculture, natural resources, rural development, nutrition, and, and science. Some people though do wear overall. And for a government job, that's <laughs> a little bit weird. And really the overall vision is to provide economic opportunity through Helping rural America thrive, helping urban America thrive, promoting agricultural production that really nourishes people in this country, and helping feed others throughout the world. We get, we have a lot of agencies. I say we as if I'm still there, but I still feel like I'm a part of it. <laughs> you're a, you're a proud alum. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally am. It's just it's such a great department, and there's 29 different agencies, and like I said, there's a hundred thousand people. I believe we're the only uh, agency. That has one representative in every single county in this country.
2: Wow, that is why. Do they all wear overalls? That's a great <laughs> question. I've seen a few of them
3: wear overalls.
1: I love the overalls touch. That's a great touch. I, I think agree. They need to honestly keep that going. Let's call it our. <laughs> well, what other like departments are? Would departments and agencies be the same in this
3: case, or? Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a lot of agencies at the at the department, and I know when I got there, I was kind of flabbergasted to be quite honest about everything that was under the USDA. So I think most of us know at the USDA, you have the food nutrition service, which really works to end hunger and obesity through the administration of 15 different federal nutrition assistance programs, which is the former food stamp program, which is now called SNAP, which stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Also WIC, which stands for Women and Children. And also they focus on school meals. We also have food safety, which really tries to ensure the nation's commercial supply of, of meat, poultry, and egg products properly labeled, properly packaged those sort of things. We gosh, there's so many other other ones. Our marketing and regulatory programs really focuses on domestic and international marketing of US agricultural products. And that particular agency really ensures the health and care of of animals and plants. And we have natural resources and, and environment, which ensures the health of the land through sustainable management. One of my favorite agencies is really research economic research Education and Economics, REE, which is really dedicated to the creation of safe, sustainable, competitive U.S. food and fiber systems and, and focuses on integrated research, um, analysis, and education. And one cool thing that falls under REE is, is an agency called NIFA that many people don't know about, but it's the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Which provides um, funding for programs to advance agriculture-related sciences. And what and when I was there, NIFA really invested and supported initiatives that ensured the long-term visibility of agriculture. And it, it was they they've had some groundbreaking discoveries when I was there and they they really collaborate with the best scientists and policymakers and make some really 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 cool discoveries I can go on but but I'm not going to go through all 29 agencies because you guys will be bored but also (laughs) I just want to touch on the 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 foreign ag service and our trade and, and foreign agricultural affairs because our the goal really with that agency is to provide farmers and ranchers with opportunities to compete in a global marketplace, which is extremely important for the United States.
1: That's really interesting. What is something that you
3: th- hope that people would
1: know about the USDA that they probably wouldn't or that they should know?
3: So a couple things. So the United States Forest Service is the largest agency within the department. And the it, it administers natural forests, our, our nation's forests and national grasslands that together comprise about 25% of federal lands. And I think when people think about our, the Forest Service, they normally think it would be under the Department of Interior, but it's under the USDA. The other cool thing, what I would love people to know really is about our dietary guidelines and how we, how the USDA had open, always, I think it's about once a year, opens the dietary guidelines for public comment. And I really wish more people took advantage of public comments. You know, we, we have everything from, I mean, even when I, I, when I was there, we transitioned from the pyramid to my plate. I don't know if you guys are old enough to, to remember the pyramid, but we, in, when I was there, that's, that's one of the things I worked on was, was my plate. And there is public comments for that. There's there's public comments a lot when it comes to dietary guidelines. And I wish more people took advantage of it because it's really an opportunity for citizens um, to interact with people at the department and have their voices heard. If enough people said, you know, let's move from from dairy milk to you know alternative milks or not not have as much meat on our plates. Then you know, then those those people will be heard. So I wish I wish people knew that that existed a little bit more.
1: What are the dietary guidelines? I mean, is that enforced in any way? Oh, yeah. Or is yeah, just like here's our suggestion as your government entity, kind of.
3: Well, yes. Yeah. So our dietary guidelines. I mean, no one can really enforce, you know, something like that. But there's the guidelines of of which we use for school meals so if if you think of it that way and if you think about working you know we've always worked the American Heart Association you know how much fiber should we be eating how much dairy should we be consuming how much protein should we be having are, are like beans and legumes part of our diet so it's it's guidelines that we would like people to really live by because we've had groups of scientists and, and others really contribute to a council for the American people. I don't agree with the dietary guidelines, but in particular, just because of the the dairy aspect of it. Most people in this country are, are are lactose intolerant. There is no reason why we should have cow's milk on our dietary guidelines, in my opinion. We could get our calcium from from plants more than we we can from an animal.
1: Yeah. Is there like a legislative arm to the USDA, or like how does that all work?
3: So, yeah, you you know, it's about the power of who we elect and who we put in office, and 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 you made mention earlier about the power of voting with our dollar. And if we don't elect the right people, we're not going to have language in the next farm bill that is going to talk about or enforce or provide funding for antibiotic resistance or regenerative agriculture or some of these solutions that we were talking about, even research dollars for for more plant-based proteins. So we kind of have to look at who we're electing we can write to our our legislators and we can call them, but we need to demand it as citizens. We need to make sure that we're electing people who are on the right side, that who care about the health and well-being of ourselves and, and the animals. So there's not, there's not one way to fix this. Unfortunately, I wish, I wish there was, but there, there are ways that we could work to improve the system. Yeah.
2: And to circle back, To the public comment. Comment. How does that work? Like, if I'm like, okay, I want to, you know, submit a comment. I have a, a thought on this particular
3: proposal? How do I do that? So the public comment period has to be open. So you can join a meeting that is that is open. So the National Organics Program I just saw recently had had public comments open, but you have to make sure that the, the that it's open for public comment. And then you can you can submit your your comments, your questions, whatever it may be, they they, they everyone can see them, and they'll also if you go onto like USDA's website and just type in like dietary guidelines public comments, you can see past public comments. So it's it's all there, but you have to make sure that it's open period for you to be able to make a public comment.
1: Wait, I'm sorry, I also have another question about basically when we go back to like talking about you know electing representatives and such. But do you know if there is a big lobbying arm or? A lot of big money that gets poured in from like these industrial farms in the food industry to some of these representatives. Is that a big area of funding?
3: Oh, yeah. There is a reason why the dairy industry is so prominent at the USDA, where we've had research that has been very prevalent that has shown us that we do not need milk from cows. So the dairy industry pours a lot of money into the department. There's also the, the issue of pesticides where we have many pesticides that are that are banned in other countries, but they're not banned here. And Monsanto has a stake in that. So I think the closer that the closer you look to a lot of these groups that are funding a lot of people in office will go back to some of these industries. Unfortunately, you have to understand that the earth is rapidly warming, that something is is Definitely changing. And I think at the USDA, it's being able in the next farm bill, which is in 2023, to be able to make that connection and make sure that there's funding in the next farm bill that is going to provide solutions for farmers, economies and the planet moving forward. So there is going to be a package of legislation passed there always is every five years with the farm bill, but we really have to recognize the, the language that's going to go into the next farm bill, that's going, that climate is going to have a major implication. There are people lobbying today for the next farm bill in 2023, so it's already starting to happen. That's amazing.
1: We wanna move on and talk about agriculture and the environment. Obviously we've, we've touched on everything, but how does animal related agriculture impact the environment?
3: Oh, gosh. So many ways. So animal agriculture is the second largest contributor to human-made greenhouse gas emissions after fossil fuels. And it's the leading cause of deforestation, water and air pollution and biodiversity loss. It has probably the greatest impact, I think, on the planet.
2: And we talked about factory farms a little bit, but what about industrial agriculture? What exactly is that? Is that past just like when we're thinking of animals, does that also encompass plant-based farming? Is there a little bit more to it?
3: Yeah. So industrial agriculture is basically what we think it is. It's large-scale intensive production of, of crops and animals that involve chemical fertilizers on crops and, and in the land. And also use the use of antibiotics in animals. And industrial agriculture pretty much produces our Pretty much has produced our food systems in a way that they're so energy intensive and fossil fuel based. And what we've seen with industrial agriculture, to be honest, is really the, lar- ter- the long-term effects of um, excessive chemical farming that have been disastrous to the health of the soil. And our soils have been so degraded that at the at the, the FAO, the scientists at the FAO are saying, if we cannot get it together. Then our top, our layer of topsoil that we have has been depleted so bad that we will have that we currently have less than 60 harvests left. And if you think about it, 60 harvests is not a long time. In 60 harvests, we will not be able to have a food system that will be able to feed everyone. So we really have to change our mindset and think about how industrial agriculture is is affecting our land is affecting ourselves, is affecting the animals. And if we don't change what we're doing, it's, we, we won't have any, and, and you know, we might, some of us might think about it, oh, I'm not gonna be in, here in 60 years, so what do I care? that's not even 60 years, it's 60 harvests. So we really need to do better and really address industrial agriculture in a way we've never addressed it before.
1: Wow. I know, it's depressing.
3: Seriously.
1: <laughs> I mean, how is that, like, we, we say this often on our show, like, how is that a thing? How is that allowed? Like,
3: Yeah, 100%. What you're seeing is having, is, is these large-scale farms, these corporate entities who buy up all these lands and put so many animals and farm in a way that they want to yield the most amount that they can. So they're going to do whatever they can to to create a greater yield. And that's pesticides, that's antibiotics, that's anything that they think that they can pump into the land and into the animals to make them bigger, to make them last longer, all while killing our soils. It's really frustrating. I often think about, you know, if you go to Italy, right, they don't really have an organic program. And you're trying to be like, wait, why don't you have an organic program? Because they don't use the intensive chemicals like we do, they don't need to label things that are organic. You know, so it's it's really frustrating to be living in a country where our industrialized agricultural system does not work for everyone. It is harmful. It's been dangerous, and we're seeing so many farmers right now transition away from this industri- industrialized system. We're seeing we're really seeing things like regenerative agriculture, which regenerative agriculture is some people may think it's a buzz term, but indigenous farmers have been um, farming regeneratively for a long time. Do you mind explaining what that means? Sure. Regenerative agriculture is basically, it's basically a holistic approach to farming, where one of the practices, let's say, includes no till or very minimal tillage. Because if you keep this, if you keep disturbing the soil, you're not going to help sequester the carbon that's needed to create the yield and the health that you want for the soil, for the vegetables, um, for that land. So minimal to no tillage is one of the practices. Cover crops, biodiversity, making sure we're not, these farms aren't just monoculture, that it's not just having one type of crop, that we're integrating different crops into the system. Composting, it, to be honest, is, is one of the practices. We waste so much food a year, a day. So I think with all of these different practices, what we're understanding about regenerative agriculture and, and the way that farmers are really trying to be more mindful about is farming in a way that gets away from this industrialized system to be able to sequester the amount of carbon that we need to live um, a better life. For, for both human and planetary health. Got it. Got it.
2: But we do want to talk about how this impacts water and water sources. What's the story there? Like how, like obviously chemicals, gross, bad. They're integrated into this farming system, but how do they get into our water sources? Why are they there?
3: Yeah, it is very gross when you think about it. So when you have like manure or com- or commercial fertilizers, when they enter the surface water, the nutrients they release stimulate microorganism growth. And without sufficient dissolved oxygen in the surface water, you have fish that will suffocate, you have, you know, I've seen dead fish in, in certain areas, and it degrades the water quality of, of that space. And then when you think about global livestock production, and when you think about livestock production in general, there's seven to nine times more sewage than, than humans. And most of that, is left untreated. So if you think about seven to nine times more sewage than humans from global livestock production, and that is left untreated, what do you think about? You think about the, the, the discharge of pesticides, antibiotics, the heavy metals, all going into our water systems. And that to me is probably one of the grossest things ever. And when And that doesn't filter out. Like, sure, we can have, you know, tap water and someone says it's filtered, but we're drinking that water. And it, you know, and most of these, and, and you know, I'll just take it a step further and a step back where I talked about the factory farms, where I talked about CAFOs, which are concentrated animal farming operations, they present a huge public risk because these viral diseases from sick livestock to humans as the the use of um, antibiotics are encouraged. So if you have irresponsible manure management, what you're doing is you're really wrecking the people who live in those areas. And people living in those areas suffer from all types of diseases and respiratory problems because of the waste that is being passed through the soil to the groundwater that's being contaminated. And whether it's it's streams or rivers there are nitrates and pathogens in in those water systems that are causing all of this you know on Man. tiktok
2: the video where <laughs> does like the ick yeah I'm like, you're like Ugh, Ugh. every that's, time that's how i felt like 10 times over yeah
3: 20 Whew. sorry
0: <laughs> no but
1: honestly that's what the reaction should be for that totally but also like like you were seeing all this firsthand right you know at the usda yeah what was that like for you? And like, what kind of power did you have in those instances? Were there times when you maybe felt powerless to because you couldn't fully
3: change that? 100%. 100%. So no one can just go into a factory farm and visit a factory farm. And there's a reason why none of us can do that. I remember one time being asked to sign an NDA. And it was I thought to myself, and this is at a time where I wasn't vegan. I didn't know much about factory farms and I didn't know what I was going to see. I was completely powerless. I was in in the South where factory farms are prevalent, where farmers and ranchers and citizens love their meat and they don't care how they get it. So I definitely didn't feel like I was in any position that I had any sort of voice to be able to express how I felt, let alone say, we need regulations on factory farms. I wish I could have, you know, and I, and I, and I kind of stand firm in my beliefs now. And I understand why we need either greater regulations. I would like to see them eradicated. I I don't think we need, we don't need factory farms, but yes, I did feel powerless and it was not a good feeling.
1: Yeah. And that was kind of my other question too. I mean, how do big factory farms affect smaller farmers?
3: Yeah, they definitely take away from their business because you have smaller farms who are farming in the right way, who are, you know, just because I'm vegan, I, I don't think the rest of the world is not going to be vegan. And I, and I don't think and everybody won't be. So I understand integrating livestock. And and for the farmers who do have animals that treat them in, in, a, in a much better way than a factory farm, their business is, they're, they're taking away business from them. And, it's, and it sucks for some of those farmers because they say, we're doing everything the right way. And they're doing this in a way that is horrible, not just for the animals, but for people as well. And to be honest, those farmers also want regulations or them to be eradicated. And it's not like, it's not this huge competition but I think we're at a point where mo- a lot of us are realizing that we don't need this in our system. And I'm hoping in this new administration and as we go into a new farm bill and having Cory Booker, who is a vegan, on the Senate Ag Committee to really be able to use his voice and really amplify the, the voices of those animals to not be in factory farms. So we need, we, one, need greater regulation, I would say one, we need to eradicate them. And if they're not going to be eradicated, then we need greater legislation around them.
1: Right. Do, can you also highlight, you know, we know the kind of effects on climate, but the effects on just the human body of ingesting the pesticides, the antibiotics to these animals, because I think a lot of people too, and like you said, like the people who love their meat, like it's not affecting them when they eat it. They're not like getting sick right after it's like, lot of chronic illnesses, probably that accumulate over the years, and I think just the way human beings are, if it's not an immediate threat, it's I don't care about it. So I don't know. Do you mind highlighting some of the like health concerns for a human being just for ingesting these things or even being around them? Honestly,
3: yes. Well, I will have to say this: if we continuously eat the way that we do, if we continuously um, get our food from factory farms, then we're going to spark another pandemic. So, because of cramped conditions, poor sanitation, antibiotic overuse, disease causing bacteria, these are all things that are likely to develop in industrial livestock facilities than in our backyard, you know, where or where farmers have, you know, 10 to 100, you know, cows grazing both on and off the farm. These bacteria can infect people through animals, food, and the environment. And every single one of these things that I have said causes chronic illnesses and factory farming is responsible for just responsible alone for the use for for the abuse of land animals um, and natural resources but if we have if we think about what has caused pandemics what has sparked pandemics so we had the the 1918 Spanish flu we which originated in pigs we had the bird flu and we had SARS we had Ebola, which stemmed from, from bats. We had mad cow disease. That happened when I was at the Department of Agriculture. And all of these are linked to how humans interact with animals. And these pandemics are traced and linked directly to that. Zoonotic diseases are diseases that can spread from animals to humans and vice versa. And it's a huge, huge, huge public health concerns. I believe the CDC has estimated that over 60% of known infectious diseases are zoonotic. So we really need to understand the link between eating animals and zoonotic diseases and pandemics. Because if we continuously have factory farms and we're having an industrialized system the way that we do, This is not going to be the last pandemic. We're actually probably going to see a pandemic, another pandemic, sooner than we think.
1: Wow. But we will move on. We have actually a listener question. Sam, you want to read this cute little question? Maybe even add the way she's gassing us up in this because, you know, we love to gas ourselves.
2: I might have to. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I need like a radio voice for this. You know what I mean? But I will, you know, I will roll into this. All right, so our listener, she manages Morningstar's uh, sustainability program, so a financial research firm. She works on sustainability reporting, so this episode is perfect for her question. Like, great timing, love this. Meet alternatives. There you go. So she says, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about government regulation in sustainability reporting. Europe is starting to force companies to disclose data on their sustainability. Should the U.S. do this? What are the sides to this in politics?
3: That's a phenomenal question. So we don't do that currently, but I truly believe it's going to happen with this new administration that has such a climate-focused lens. I think what is happening today is that we're seeing so many companies really put out these intense climate impact reports, right? And really wanting to do right by by the people. But I think we need to hold companies accountable. And that's where I think the government could come into play. One example is Danone, Danone North America, which I have have worked with in the past, where they had a target zero net emission. And they focus on everything from cutting emissions to offering healthier and sustainable diet solutions to building resilience in food and water cycle to fostering carbon positive solutions and eliminating deforestation From their supply chain by a certain year. So I think we need, I think that the government, the US government needs to do is really hold these companies on their timelines because everyone throws out these arbitrary numbers, these arbitrary dates. By 2050, we want to, you know, go to net zero emissions. Okay, how are you going to get there and who's going to hold you accountable? Because for the next however many years we're not going to really think about it because you put out this lovely climate policy, right? So to achieve some of these emissions, they're going to have to really put together a and some of these companies just in, be pioneers in this space to be able to fix carbon and forests and and our ecosystems. So I do think it's something that we should we should consider and. I do think that the new administration will probably focus a little bit more on that. I'm hoping they will. But if, if not for anything, if the government doesn't do it, the citizens do. The people who buy these products need to be able to hold these companies to these policies that they that they put out and these these arbitrary numbers that go out into, into the world
2: yeah it's funny that you say that with the arbitrary numbers because we always joke we're like oh my god by 2050 we're gonna be ancient 2060 <laughs> like literally always like i wonder what life will be at that point because it feels we like so will we far away.
1: have men in our lives i don't know it's highly <laughs> <don't> <laughs> You know, it's not looking good right now, but it's fine. But hopefully
2: at least climate policy will be in a better
3: spot. That is also I care about. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we haven't we really haven't seen language like this. I haven't seen people be this excited about about the planet, about global health, about what we could do in the next 10 years to, you know, to reduce our carbon footprint. We're seeing companies like Chevy, like what they're doing in, in terms of cars. So I and, and gas and emissions and how they're cutting their emissions and how they want every I don't know, they, they throw out a number as well in terms of electrical ve- electric vehicles, which I think is which I think is great. So there's it's I don't think it's dr- just like a buzzword or it's just trendy right now. I think this is actually going to stick, which is really exciting to see.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. There's a hu- There's been a huge shift, obviously, which is exciting. And I think this is a perfect kind of segue and just way to wrap up because we have talked a lot about a lot of scary stuff today. And we want to make sure, you know, every time we do talk about this scary stuff, we provide action items. And so obviously this conversation about yes, yes conversations have shifted, the culture is shifting, which is amazing. And there are people doing really amazing work. But do you have any, you know, suggestions on how people can take action, especially young people in regards to climate to agriculture to being a consumer of all of this as well? What can we do? Yeah, so I think
3: there's a lot that we can do. And I think first and foremost, we have to take a look at our environmental uh, footprint and what we are doing is that we can lessen i think for each one of us it's going to be determined how we can make a difference based on what means the most to us because what means a lot to me may not mean the same to you so and and i say that because for me looking at let's just talk about like your let's just talk about food for a second so you have a a beef burger, a quarter pound beef burger, and you have a plant-based burger, and you're trying to decide which one to go for. Well, if I tell you that the plant-based burger uses 99% less water, uses 93% less land, 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, and 46% less energy, you know, if I give you that, what do you choose? But just being able to provide anyone with that sort of information is really helpful to determining how we could really impact our environmental footprint. But we all we have to really. Uh, it's, so it could be something about our food system. It could be plastics. It could be microplastics that are going into our oceans. So you might want to be part of a cleanup. Earthday.org, We do we do cleanups. It's a little different this year just because of because of COVID. But cleanups are still happening. So. It's really about taking a look at what what you how you want to make the greatest impact. For me, it happens to be the intersection of food and climate. For someone else, it's, it, it it might be you know eliminating factory farms. It might you know again it might be plastic. It might be you know getting electric vehicle. So I think for so many different ways that we can all contribute to having a healthier planet but we need to ultimately make the decision of what's going to be the best for us and what's going to be the most feasible. Because if you're in an area that doesn't really have accessibility to, to grocery stores or plant-based foods, it might be a little bit harder. So I think we just have to figure it out within ourselves be really and be really intentional about the food that we're, we're putting in our bodies, that we're putting on our plate, because we do have the power we have the power at with whatever we put at the end of the for, our fork, and we have the power with how we're spending our money. So if we're spending our money that um, in companies that aren't using sustainable practices, you're contributing to the climate crisis. And so it's, it's realizing what your footprint means. And to be honest, I didn't really understand that until maybe a decade ago, and I became a lot more mindful. Food waste is a huge issue. So being able to, even if you're just able to compost once a week, you are still helping. You're able to take that compost and really make it into material that, that can go back into the land in a very regenerative way. So there are so many different ways to think about this. But again, it's how can we be most intentional moving forward?
1: That's amazing. I think that is such an important point that what can your footprint be? What can you do in your life? So I think that is important to highlight for sure.
3: Yeah, you have to make it fun. Because if you don't, if you don't make it fun, I think it becomes very daunting to people. I think if someone can hear, you know, we'll hear something about people, somebody going plant based, they're like, Oh, I can never do that. That's fine. I'm not going to force that on you. But I'm going to give you the facts. And I'm going to say, well, why don't you just try to go meatless one day a meal? Like just one one time, one time like dinner, just go meatless. And so we have to start somewhere. And and I think we need to recognize where that somewhere is. And we can't force this upon each other. But as we're seeing the planet deteriorate, something has got to give. And we need to change. We need to really alter our choices. And even simple changes like, you know, swapping out cow's milk for oat milk or almond milk, your cream cheese for you know dairy-free cream cheese which tastes just as good so it's just it's simple swap
1: totally i'm just like to anybody listening also just give these alternatives a chance they're actually really really good they really are delicious and you probably wouldn't even notice well to also wrap up can you highlight any organizations especially the one you are part of that people can be aware of, people can possibly join, get involved with. And then also like, where can we find you? If it's social media or anything else you're working on that we can plug and push out there so people can find you.
3: Sure. So yes, yeah, earthday.org. We're celebrating Earth Day next month and it's been such a great month, but it's also, you know, we we were supposed to have an event on the National Mall last year and those events normally had about 300,000 people at them and we have to pivot to to virtual, and we're pivoting to virtual this year again. But I encourage everyone to tune in to Earthday.org's live stream. Also, Biden's climate summit will also be that same day. So we have everyone on there from Kristen Bell to the Pope giving a message, Dr. Michael Greger, who's like my favorite plant-based doctor, who's super cool. We have a a webinar on regenerative agriculture, if you want to learn more, with Folks like Dr. Jonathan Foley from Project Drawdown, which is—I will have to say—Project Drawdown is one of my favorite places to go to.
1: We just highlighted them on our show that came out today. We had Dr. Catherine Wilkinson on. Oh, one, look one, at the small world, climate world we're working in.
3: <laughs> yeah, Dr. John. Every time Dr. Foley talks, every time he speaks, I get so excited because he talks about the, about climate and solutions in a way that everyone can understand. And it's not just science jargon. It's solid, wholeheartedly solutions to move forward. So yeah, so I'm excited about Earth Day and, and what's to come. I'm excited about young the, the, the youth movement when it comes to climate, seeing this many young people so involved. We have a nine-year-old activist from India that's going to be on the show with the EPA administrator and it's just like, oh my gosh. gosh, at nine years old, I was not so doing amazing. that. <laughs>
1: I was literally just rolling in dirt when I
3: was yep. nine. Yeah, yep. I feel like that's what I was doing. I was, you know, you we were testing the land. You exactly. were making that connection to the land, which is great. But yeah, I'm excited about Earth Day. I'm excited about the youth movement. And I, I think there are some things that we can be hopeful for when it when it comes to the destruction of the planet and how we right now can do something to take care of that.
1: Totally. Well, thank you so so much for coming on the show. Thank this you. has been so informative. I'm sorry we asked you like a hundred more questions than we even prepared for.
2: A hundred? I think it was like three hundred. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but it's
2: okay. It's okay. I don't mind.
1: Yeah, it was so informative. So I'm super excited for people here for people to hear this because I think again it's just another kind of layer of this climate conversation that doesn't always get you know, the attention it needs. So I'm super excited.
3: It, it never does. Animal agriculture is always left out of these conversations. And I, I consistently say we cannot confront the climate crisis without addressing the impact animal agriculture has on human and planetary health. It's as simple as that because it's the second largest con- contributor to the climate crisis, to greenhouse gas emissions. And no one is talking about it in a way that needs to be talked about because of big ag. And we really and, and to be thank you for highlighting this and thank you for, for having this part of the conversation because it's really not part of conversations as it as it should be. And that's been my my mission for the last two years is really to bring this to the forefront of conversations.
1: Yeah, I think it's like us and Leonardo DiCaprio it's really <laughs> like highlighting, you know, animals in- and <laughs> We're in good company. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think we're like same caliber. Seriously,
2: (laughs) talk about a lineup. But I I think, you know, this has been such a great conversation. So excited to share all of these insights with our listeners. And, you know, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you both. I had so much fun.
1: Well, that is it for today. We do have, obviously, a few little housekeeping reminders. To start, let's continue to push out our brand ambassador program, which we are both so excited for you guys. We are launching in May, but you can actually sign up today and the sign up form again linked episode description instagram bio everywhere so go check it out and you really just fill in your information you let us know really what you would like to see in a brand ambassador program why you would potentially want to be a brand ambassador and even if you're you're, you know unsure on the fence right now we'd still love to hear from you and you know get your feedback on what you'd like in something like that so let us know but again for your reminder it's really going to be just a community that we're building here at girl in the gov to network, to help young people with their resumes, with professional building, with networking, also getting experience with content creation. But you guys can help us rebrand politics and be a part of what we're building. So go sign up or at least go, you know, fill out your information. Let us know what you think about it. And we'd love to hear from you regardless.
2: Amazing. And, you know, we do have one other thing. And this is what we love we love participation from listeners of the show people that are following our accounts and we have a really really awesome submission from shannon kelly with an action item and like we said we love shout an action out. item. yes yeah, seriously so major shout out to shannon for sending this to us and before we give you like a little bit of the four and one just a little like asterisk if there's ever a petition that you see that you're like, this is really interesting, or a topic that you know has a really interesting article, feel free to send them to us. We are all ears, we're like open to it. And this is a really great example of that. So Shannon is an alum of Baylor University, which for both Maddie and I is nowhere
1: near- Nowhere to be found. <laughs> nowhere near us. It's in Texas, I did know that though. I went to, I played soccer with a girl who transferred from Baylor. So I think that was my first run in, but, and then they were just in the NCAA tournament. See, look at me, sports. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Sports. Sports.
2: Sports. Well, at this school, more than sports happen. Healthcare, of course, happens for the university's employees. However, what has come to our attention through the submission is that Baylor University denies healthcare benefits to employees with same-sex partners. The direct healthcare benefits plan states dependents can only be added as a spouse
1: of the opposite sex whom you are lawfully
2: married. Hello,
1: discrimination. Definitely go check out the petition. It's on Again, it will be linked. This episode description is going to be so linked up. We love it so go check it out let us know also if you have any questions and i'm sure shannon will be on deck for us if we can answer any questions for everyone anyone who wants to get involved or sign the petition or or whatever or even has connections to baylor that we'd uplift so day of action is really in just full force today full
2: I mean, love it. We're here for it. We're also
1: totally here for you guys
2: following us on social. So, of course, hit us with that follow on Instagram,
1: Girl on the Gov, Girl on the Gov the Podcast. Have you told your friends and family about this podcast? Have you subscribed on Apple Podcasts? Have you followed on Spotify? Have you given us a review on Apple Podcasts? But DM us with any 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 questions you have and again if you have petitions you want to uplift questions you want to uplift as you see we will definitely feature them on the show so let us know if there's anything we can answer for you or highlight and that is it for today and we'll be talking to you all next wednesday
0: Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
3: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you.